welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, September 25th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. When someone says epidemic, you probably think of things like influenza, the measles, or cholera. It's probably very unlikely that you'd think of diabetes. But one in every 16 New Yorkers have the disease, and the numbers are increasing at an unprecedented rate. Ethnic minorities like Hispanics, African Americans, and Native Americans are much more susceptible to diabetes. This week, I talked to three experts about type 2 diabetes. They were all part of a conference on the subject last week at the Academy. We'll find out why the numbers are increasing and what's being done to slow them down, both in New York City and in the rest of America. This podcast is supported by educational grants from Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America, Lilly USA, Bayer Healthcare Diabetes Care, and Sanofi Aventis U.S. We talk about an epidemic of diabetes in New York City. We estimate about 500,000 people living with diabetes and another 200,000 who have it and don't even know it yet. Meet Diana Berger. I'm the diabetes medical specialist at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene in the Diabetes Prevention and Control Program. Today, I've sat down with Berger and two other experts to get the lowdown on type 2 diabetes. In the past 10 years, diabetes prevalence in New York City has doubled and a similar pattern is being seen all over the country. In the U.S., we have over 24 million people with diabetes. This is Anne Albright. She's the director of the Division of Diabetes Translation at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Worldwide, there are, you know, again, just millions and millions of people that have this disease. The hardest hit countries, though, uh, we're seeing are China, India, they have the greatest numbers, certainly as it relates to the large population that they have. So from the CDC, we we run the nation surveillance system. So we are responsible for helping monitor the prevalence, what we call prevalence, or the number of people with diabetes in the United States. Now, some of you may already be thinking, I don't have diabetes, no one I know has diabetes, and none of this matters to me. But Listen to this. Uh, modeling work out of my team at CDC has projected the um, number of people into the future that will have diabetes in the U.S. And the way we've now articulated it is that for people born in the year 2000, which is when the model was done, one in three will develop diabetes in their lifetime. One in three, and it's closer to one in two for high-risk ethnic populations, which again are Hispanic Latinos, African Americans, Asian and Pacific Islanders, and very hard hit are our American Indians or our native populations, which include Alaska Natives, in addition to American Indian Natives. So the CDC estimates that one in three people will develop diabetes and one in every two if you're in an ethnic minority. 24 million people in America have diabetes and half a million people in New York. If I still haven't got your attention, you might as well tune out. Today we're talking about type 2 diabetes, its prevalence, its causes, and why it's more common in ethnic populations. First, let's get a diabetes refresher from Berger. We know that there's three major types of diabetes. There's type 1, 
which is a disease where the body stops making insulin. And insulin is a hormone in the body that helps the sugar in the blood go into the cells to make energy. And the body attacks itself. It's an autoimmune disease. We attack ourselves, the part of the body that makes insulin, and the insulin is destroyed. So people with type 1, the minute they get diagnosed, they have to take insulin for life. They can take it either with a syringe or an insulin pump. The other major type is type 2, which is really obesity-related. So the body makes lots of insulin, but it just doesn't work. And, and we think that it doesn't work because of, of something called insulin resistance. And there's, there's hormones within our fat cells that counteract the effect of insulin. So insulin just doesn't work. So often we need to take insulin with type 2. We also can treat it with pills. And, and the best treatment for both types of diabetes is diet and exercise. So being very physically active, to, to moving more, to eating more heart-healthy foods. The third type of diabetes is gestational diabetes or diabetes in pregnancy. And, and that comes about when a woman gets pregnant. There's hormones from pregnancy that counteract insulin, and that's why they get diabetes. And it usually goes away after they give birth. So three types of diabetes, type 1, type 2, and gestational. According to the CDC, 95% of all diabetes cases are type 2. And type 2 diabetes is directly linked with obesity, which means the fatter Americans get, the bigger the diabetes problem becomes. In the past 20 years, obesity in America has climbed steadily, which accounts for the increasing number of diabetes cases. But obesity isn't entirely to blame for the big numbers. The CDC has also changed the way they diagnose diabetes, lowering the blood sugar level needed for diagnosis, which means, basically, they're diagnosing more people. The reason the diagnostic criteria changed is because we have determined that we need to find people earlier in the course of the disease. So the diagnostic criteria used to be a blood sugar of 140, and now it's a blood glucose or blood sugar of 126. So that number has been chosen because it helps correlate the tests that we use to diagnose diabetes. So it helps correlate why we will check people with what's called an oral glucose tolerance test, means people drink sugary syrup and their blood sugar is measured over points in time. And then it sort of equates or correlates the fasting number that we use, that, that 126 that I mentioned. So it helps those diagnostic tests be a little bit more on the same page. Okay, so more people are being diagnosed with diabetes, but wait. Diabetes is a manageable disease if it's treated correctly, right? So then what's the problem? For one thing, in its early stages, type 2 diabetes shows almost no symptoms. You might feel tired or thirsty, but nothing largely out of the ordinary. That's why, says Berger, most people walk around with diabetes for five to seven years before finally being diagnosed. Another problem is that diabetes disproportionately affects ethnic minorities. I'm Dr. Enrique Caballero. I'm an endocrinologist and clinical investigator working at the Joslin Diabetes Center in Boston at Harvard Medical School. 
Type 2 diabetes is one of the most important problems in healthcare at the present time in the country. But it turns out that there are some populations that are at higher risk, and we are talking about some of the minority populations. We're talking about Latinos or Hispanics, African Americans, Asian Americans, American Indians, Arabs, Southeast Asians. All these different racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S. have a higher chance, a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes and its complications. Part of this phenomenon is from a biological source. There are some data suggesting that some of these populations have more insulin resistance, which is the inability of insulin to promote its effect in glucose uptake. So there are some genetic factors that may contribute to that. There's other elements like, for instance, the fat deposition in the body. Some people tend to accumulate more fat in the abdomen or the intra-abdominal fat called visceral fat, that some of these groups are more likely to acquire. And there may be other things. For instance, the pancreas may get tired more quickly in some of these populations. So there are some biological factors that explain why there's more diabetes. And then there are cultural factors. Take a city like New York, for instance. And then let's compare a neighborhood like the Upper East Side to one like Harlem or the South Bronx, for instance. Here's Berger. You'll see incredible differences in terms of access to healthy foods, to numbers of fast food restaurants, to numbers of, of parks. When you look at some of the higher socioeconomic um, neighborhoods, those neighborhoods that have more wealth, there's more access to fresh fruits and vegetables, there's more green space, there's safer places for our kids to play. Much of the differences that we see boil down to, to some very simple but challenging problems, and, and, and I think poverty is really the root of, of much of these differences. So many ethnic populations who are already at a high risk for developing diabetes are living in neighborhoods that make healthy living challenging. So what are we doing to tackle this problem? It turns out, lots. Caballero runs something called the Jocelyn Center. The Jocelyn Diabetes Center is an institution that is fully dedicated to diabetes care, education, research, outreach, so everything that has to do with diabetes is done at Jocelyn. Uh, it's been an institution uh, around in diabetes for more than 110 years now, and the institution has been directly involved in the development uh, of diabetes uh, care uh, tools, discoveries, for instance, laser therapy that is used for the treatment of retinopathy in patients with diabetes started at Jocelyn. Uh, some of the guidelines about how to manage uh, women with gestational diabetes, pregnant women with diabetes in general, a lot of education, and now we have been very interested in working with culturally diverse populations as well. Caballero is from Mexico City, and if someone has a good sense of Latin American culture, it's him. The Jocelyn Center has started a program just for Latinos, and they're working on a similar program for African Americans. In the Latino Initiative, what we have done is to integrate a very good program that addresses many of the factors that I was telling you about in regards to social, cultural issues, financial issues for our population, developing culturally oriented materials, strategies, educational activities for our patients. And we all provide, I'm one of the endocrinologists that sees the patients in the program, and we provide care 
in Spanish for our population, but most importantly, we're trying to integrate activities that are culturally oriented. For instance, group education is something that we have seen that works very well in the Latino population. So we are now trying some uh, group medical visits. We have developed a salsa dancing program for our patients because it's part of the culture. You know, we like to dance, we like to socialize. Why not to incorporate some of these strategies to enhance some of the behaviors that we really want to improve? We have mental health uh, support. We have programs to support the activities for our patients. And we are doing some research in this area, trying to understand the barriers, the factors that may influence the development and course of diabetes, adherence to treatment, et cetera. And we are doing some other studies with risk population, at risk populations, et cetera. We're doing a lot of outreach activities. Uh, we have worked with different community health centers in Boston, trying to see how we can help them improve the care that they provide to different populations. And we participate in many activities around the country in the area of healthcare disparities as well. I have worked very closely with the American Diabetes Association as well, and we're very interested in trying to really understand this phenomenon a little bit more to develop more effective strategies. Now, while salsa dancing sounds like fun, the question is, does it work? We do actually have our own data that we're planning to publish very soon about how we believe that all these different activities can impact favorably the population. Of course, there's a lot of different things that we need to improve. For instance, many of the patients that come to our program come only once, twice, and then they don't come back. And we believe that unless we start addressing many of these social and financial uh, cultural issues more effectively, it is very difficult to really do this for everybody. Obviously, we have a great group of uh, people that have really succeeded in really doing very good in their control, etc. But I am now starting to be a little bit more concerned about all those people that have even more significant challenges and that are not really getting the benefits that we, we think they should. And it's a big problem, obviously. So we need to really understand what is happening a little bit more. Berger faces similar challenges in New York City. Getting information about who needs help is tricky. That's why the New York City Health Department uses a unique method of identifying people in need. The method is called the A1C registry, which probably doesn't mean anything to you unless you have diabetes. An A1C test is used to measure your blood sugar levels, explains Berger. We know that most people with diabetes, when they go to their doctor, they get this test, and it's a test that measures the average blood sugar over two to three months. And the way I like to describe it to my patients is I ask them to think about a cornflake and then think about a frosted flake. So the cornflake is the red blood cell and the frosted flake is a red blood cell coated with sugar. So this test that you get from your doctor measures the amount of sugar that coats the red blood cell. And, and this is a test that helps your doctor and you understand how well you're managing your diabetes. Um, it also helps us understand whether you're more likely to get the complications of diabetes down the road. For a normal person without diabetes, blood sugar levels usually fall between 60 and 120. 
For someone with unmanaged diabetes, they can be as high or higher than 200. A few years ago, the Department of Health started something called the A1C registry. Basically, every time somebody gets an A1C test, their blood sugar level is entered into a giant digital database. This database is secured and monitored by the Department of Health. If you have an unusually high blood sugar level, the Department of Health and your doctor reach out to you with a letter suggesting ways for you to get healthier and better manage your disease. There, there's three things that we do with the A1C registry. The first thing we do is it helps us understand sugar control across the city. Second thing we do is we reach out to doctors and hospitals that have ordered this test and we let them know how their patients are doing. We also reach out to patients who are not doing so well with their blood sugar, and that's when their A1C is over 9, which means that their blood sugar is running in the 200s. And a normal blood sugar for someone without diabetes is somewhere between 60 or 70 and 120. New York City's A1C registry is the only program of its kind in the country, and it's only one of the city's ways for fighting type 2 diabetes. They focus on three major regions, Harlem, the South Bronx, and East and Central Brooklyn. Since type 2 diabetes is often a result of obesity, Berger and her team are working to make the city healthier, which it turns out can be as simple as getting fresh fruits and veggies at the classic New York bodega. We work across the city to increase fresh fruits and vegetables in these high-risk neighborhoods. We try to get more low-fat milk, more healthy foods in the bodegas in these neighborhoods. We also have a citywide calorie labeling initiative where when people go to fast food restaurants, they're able to see as they're purchasing the number of calories in their food. We've also banned trans fats across the city, which is, is just incredible. But type 2 diabetes isn't just a New York problem. Albright says the CDC has some major research and projects underway to tackle the crisis on a nationwide scale. We fund all states, all U.S. affiliated territories, and a number of tribes to be actually working on diabetes programmatic work. And some of the things we're asking our states to work on, and our state programs are, are really, many of them are very, very stellar programs. And we're actually um, have been asking them, and they are working with healthcare delivery systems to really try to implement the chronic care model or what we refer to as the planned care model. We're also working with them to improve and implement evidence-based self-management programs. So our state programs can choose to work in three primary areas. They can choose to work in health systems, they can choose to work in health communications, and they can choose to work in policy or environmental. And in the health system arena, a lot of the work does focus around system changes to improve the health care system. Of course, we're in health reform right now, so we'll see what comes of that. But diabetes has been actually a major driver in that work. It's been a major driver in trying to change our healthcare system from an acute care system to one that can better accommodate 
people with chronic diseases, which are much more costly these days and much more prominent or prevalent. They're also focusing on minority populations, like Caballero's team is doing. From a policy and environmental perspective, our colleagues in the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity are very focused on the broader obesity epidemic and looking at a lot of those environmental policies. What we're doing in the diabetes world is we're actually trying to support those policies. We're trying to better evaluate some of those policies. And our native programs are actually working with the tribes. We do nothing without tribal consultation. We're working with them actually to try to create healthier environments. So things around communal gardens and farmers markets and those kinds of things that um, the tribes will identify as ways in which they can change their physical environment. And some of our diabetes state programs are also working on those things. Despite all of these efforts, the question remains, is any of this really working? Here's Caballero. I'm optimistic. I think that slowly, but really in the right direction, we have improved outcomes in diabetes in general. Uh, there's some recent data that suggests that we're doing better in terms of glycemic control, blood pressure control. That's encouraging. However, most of our patients are still not well controlled. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about some of these populations, the gap continues to exist. In fact, the gap between what we see in the white population and, let's say, with the Hispanic population is actually increasing, not getting smaller. So we do need to really address many of these issues. And the prevalence of diabetes is increasing. We'll have more and more patients. So unless we really dedicate efforts in a comprehensive way to understand the challenges from all the biological, social, cultural perspective, we perhaps won't be able to really tackle the problem effectively. There's a need for more research. There's a need for more funding. There's a need for more development of programs that address all this. And I think that the government has been very good in bringing now more uh, of the support out there. In the same way that we learn about what is happening with some of these populations, the benefits will apply to the general population as well because everyone has a culture, everyone has social, everyone has emotional issues. So the learning experience will really be very helpful for many other groups. If you live in New York City, visit nyc.gov health for more information about type 2 diabetes and how you can stay healthy. If you're not a New Yorker, check out Caballero's organization at joslin.org or the CDC at cdc.gov slash diabetes. For Science in the City, I'm Elena Rangi. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Try following us on Twitter, or find us on Facebook, and let us help you find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership, or to support Science in the City directly today, log on to scienceandthecity.org donate. As always, we'd love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.